0: Marshall. I'm the host today. We've got a great panel to talk about mergers and acquisitions and joint ventures of health systems and healthcare providers and the implications on real estate. I work in the consulting business of the Hall Render Law Firm, which is Hall Render Advisory Services. I come to this profession after spending 15 years in the development arena for outpatient healthcare facilities, largely on behalf of health systems. So I ser- currently serve as a consultant in this capacity. And uh, we've got a great panelist uh, discussion today. And I'll start with uh, Matt Robbins making his introduction. We'll work to Mitch and then Victor.
1: Great, thank you, John. It's nice to be with this group today. Uh, my name is Matt Robbins, and I'm a senior vice president with Kauffman Hall. Uh, and I spend time in our uh, capital markets and our mergers and acquisitions practices. So, work on a pretty wide range of uh, healthcare transactions, from you know capital raises to uh, physician partnerships to you know health system uh, mergers and acquisitions and uh, advise on a good amount of the kind of real estate transactions that fit under those different umbrellas. And I look forward to the dialogue today. Um, Maybe Mitch, I'll pass it to you.
2: Hey, good morning, uh, or good afternoon. Uh, Clayton Mitchell, uh, Senior Vice President of Real Estate and Facilities for uh, Jefferson Health, actually Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health. Uh, it's 14 hospital, uh, about 14 million square feet system covering uh, Philadelphia and uh, Southern New Jersey. Um, we've uh, I've, I've been here for two years, so we've been going through a transformation of sorts, moving from a um, a, a more department level type of organization to a more corporate entity as the uh, the the company is. So great to be here. My name is Victor McConnell, and
3: I lead VMG Health's real estate service line. VMG uh, is a healthcare advisory and valuation firm. We've been uh, focused on healthcare for about 25 years. Uh have a, an array of, of uh, transaction advisory service lines, recently added coding, audits, quality of earnings, financial due diligence. Um, so my focus is real estate, but in, in most of our work, we're working uh, on an interdisciplinary basis with VMG's other service lines for for hospitals, for for REITs, for private equity, uh, uh, kind of range of client base.
0: Thank you, gentlemen. And for a quick housekeeping measure, this session is being recorded. So for our participants and registrants, you will be able to access a recording of this session. And we very much encourage questions and uh, dialogue from the participating audience as we move through this. We will address them as we can. Um, and we will wrap up when we're done talking about our exciting topic here, or uh, if there's no more questions towards the end of our session. So, but for those participating, feel free to use the Q&A session here to uh, address your questions, and we'll try to get to them through the session. We're going to start with just a really quick five-slide uh, presentation here, if you will, or slideshow to kind of put some context around this this theme and the topic here. So, I'm going to share my screen here and uh, we'll see what comes up. All right, so everybody should see a screen that shows a whole bunch of headlines. And these were, there's nothing magical about this. Um, lots of m and discussions or lots of M&A uh, transactions in 2019, less in 20 and uh, lesser so far in queue of 2021. However, that doesn't mean the discussions have waned it might just be a reflection of people still trying to recover from COVID. But the headlines in here all point to a different story, or they have various stories. There are haves and have mores. There are haves and have nots. There are headlines here that point to uh, mergers not going through for regulatory matters or for uh, market share concerns. Uh, there's for-profit. There's nonprofit. The point here is that it's active, and despite the COVID situation over the past 16 months um, and these headlines were just taken from like the past six weeks. So it's real, it's topical and we think that real estate, although it's often overlooked, actually can add a great deal of value to these but it could also be a detriment if the diligence isn't handled the right way. So I'm going to move uh, into some slides, or a few slides from Kaufman Hall and Matt Robbins and uh, hopefully we'll get them here to move forward. Hang on a second here. I'm gonna go back after we get to it. I think this is where you wanted to start, right, Matt?
1: Yeah. Thank you, John. I think we wanted to just quickly set kind of some broader you know, zoom out context here around you know, kind of the, the credit view and how, how do the you know, capital markets and kind of the market constituencies view healthcare right now um, in, you know, in the general consensus is that the larger health systems have, have weathered the crisis better, uh, larger balance sheets, broader regional uh, presence more revenue diversity uh, that's really paid off uh, in in a number of ways and uh, you, you see a lot of trend uh, transactions coming to market now around two large organizations trying to get larger and you know two strong organizations trying to do something that they couldn't do by themselves um, and that's been going on for a number of years and now we see that really accelerating as as John mentioned on the on the prior page um, but the you know the near-term credit view is still very challenged uh, I think the estimates we've, uh, we've put together as a, as a firm, you know, showed, you know, 50 to 100 billion of revenue uh, might be kind of still out of the picture this year across the entire healthcare sector. Um, Because just, you know, utilization and and activity in the hospital sector really just hasn't rebounded um, as much as folks thought. That's inpatient, outpatient, ED, you know, those have come back to maybe 80 or 90 or 95%. But that last little bit uh, is a significant amount of of revenue and, and margin as well. And that's where we think there's just gonna be a sizable credit gap as we as we roll forward here. You know, Stronger and weaker health and weaker health systems are still gonna partner and still gonna look for ways to, uh, to work together, but it's also kind of the strong and the strong moving forward and that's where real estate can really help it, advance that and leverage that as you look at how the two organizations come together. So maybe John, if we can go, go back to um, maybe two pages and just a couple of other data points here um, before we jump into the discussion, you know, only 13 deals in the first quarter, but the average size of deal has continued to go up. So you can see in that, that bottom right graph, the average size of the smaller health system in these deals, looking back over the last decade, has been growing at about a 6% rate on average. And this graph is, is kind of an annual graph, only gets us through 2020 where the average deal was in the mid 300 millions of revenue well, in the first quarter Thirteen deals, counts for seventy-two hospitals. The average deal size was closer to six hundred and fifty million. So you just see this explosion in the last quarter of, look, okay, it's fewer deals, but each one is more significant. Um, and then on the on the left hand side, you see it as well that the organizations that are partnering, you know, one out of every eight is rated at least A minus. So those are not organizations that are facing some type of default or, you know financial event that could be, you know, detrimental to them, these are organizations that are looking to to become something better, become something different. A couple of examples of those deals are here on the next page. Um, we've seen these kind of, you know, mega mergers, which, you know, common spirit is now a national footprint, Um, you know, multiple states, you know, scores and scores of hospitals, even though they've been very, you know, picky recently about, you know, getting out of certain markets and getting into certain markets, they're still active. Um, we've seen targeted expansion in core markets, um, you know dating back to Ascension's purchase of, of presence uh, several years ago, but also you know Piedmont recently having you know several uh, additions to their portfolio in Georgia and Stewart in the Florida market where working across the page, you know bought a handful of very very well-functioning hospitals from Tenet, Um that you know a lot of that for-profit activity for a number of years was, Organizations like community, you know, divesting and, and divesting, frankly, because they were, you know, distressed and they needed, you know, proceeds to to manage their capital structure. But now you see, Tenet and HCA, um, you know, selling well performing hospitals, but getting out of specific geographies because they're not strategic. They're not able to, to get the margins they want. So you're seeing a lot of very deliberate moves in and out of the market. And then last, kind of completing the circle around is you know the, the deal that was just announced the other day with LifePoint and Kindred, where you know acute care operator, you know, expanding into a, you know, very different service line around post-acute. And so it's just, it's a different set of transactions than it was 10 years ago where in the wake of the financial crisis, it was a lot of, you know, how do we make this work? But the numbers don't add up. Now organizations are trying to do different things and, and do different things together. And so what that means is we kind of move to our conversation today is we, we've gone from kind of, you know, business and market optimization and like, kind of what's the footprint that we need and how do we be effective and how do we compete? Uh, and organize our business around the service lines and sites, the capital financing that we need to be really, really effective. So I'll pause there and maybe Mitch to you um, to give kind of the Jefferson story. Well
3: Matt, uh, we, it looks like we actually have a question for Mitch as well. Uh, and what, uh, so maybe he can address that. And the, and the one thing before we move on from kind of this broader capital markets discussion, um, you know, it's interesting to see the, the the market's reaction to kind of these trends you're talking about, where you know post COVID the the if you look in the aggregate at at uh, tenant HCA and CHS they were down almost 50 percent and now um, as of June they're up almost 50 percent from pre COVID levels so um, you know the the markets have have responded pretty positively to uh, to a lot of the trends that you're, you're touching on there. But yeah. so John, if you want to read the question aloud for, for Mitch so everybody can hear it, I guess.
0: Yeah, so uh, this comes from a real estate compliance individual. Can Mitch expand upon moving from being department-driven to operating more as a corporation? What changes and processes were made to accomplish the transition? So we're jumping right into it for you, Mitch.
2: Yeah, actually, that's a really good beer discussion. Um, but, uh, you know, really, and actually actually, can weave it into sort of the Jefferson story. So, um, you know, the Jefferson story sort of begins with the, um, the ascension of uh, Dr. Steve Clasco as the CEO. Uh, and in 2014, um, as he took over uh, then the Thomas Jefferson, um, actually health, realizing that uh, to be competitive, he needed to scale, right? Um, and so, you know, when you think about, you know, uh, the risk in, in this space, it's it's there's a risk to having a lot of hospital footprint, a lot of beds, particularly as we're shifting into sort of an ambulatory footprint. But, but you know, that was that was the model to build up that scale, uh, get that volume, and then the volume can can then help you start to introduce efficiencies which I'll sort of talk about in terms of the answer to that question of moving from a department to a more corporate footprint. But, you know, as we walk through these mergers, uh, the Abington Health uh, merger gave Jefferson a presence in um, North Philadelphia and Montgomery County. Then, then came ARIA, which was more of the Northeast portion of uh, Philadelphia. Um, and, and it's important to know that in, in the campus, uh, campuses surrounding Frankfurt Hospital and Torresdale in particular, uh, the, the, those are those are some of the, the heaviest hit opioid um, uh, sectors, not only in Philadelphia but but in the country. So it's so a very challenged um, uh, area to provide healthcare, uh, and, and, and in many cases, particularly at our Frankfurt campus, uh, Jefferson is the um, is the safety net hospital. Then we moved on, and 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 um, and you know his feeling of of innovation and philanthropy as, as a significant part of the Jefferson mission, um, I think stimulated uh, the desire to pull in Philadelphia University and, and combining Philadelphia University with Thomas Jefferson University to create a more academic, uh, a more robust academic experience um, and leveraging a lot of the synergies between the academic pillar and the, uh, the clinical pillar to bring uh, increased value. Uh, and so. Uh, You you know, in that particular merger, we brought in a a significant amount of innovation, um, a significant amount of opportunities to monetize research um, and partnerships with Silicon Valley uh, to create greater value in terms of technology and its impact on uh, on healthcare uh, service delivery. Uh, Kennedy Health was a system um, that allowed us to, to move into southern New Jersey um, you know, we're currently completing a couple of uh, towers there to to increase the value uh, in that area. And so, at that point, we we became we we became a force, a significant force for care delivery uh, for the Philadelphia area. Uh, McGee Rehabilitation, which is in Center City, um, enhanced our capabilities in, in that area. There's three hospitals uh, in Center City that uh, McGee uh, uh, sort of aligned with our our neuro, neurosurgeon Neuroscience Hospital, um, Given, which is our main academic medical center, and then Methodist, which serves uh, South Philly. Uh, and then in 2020, um, you know, the acquisition of, of health partners uh, Health Partners plans, which, which gave us a, a payer, uh, mainly in the, um, in the Medicare arena, uh, but really allowed us to, again, begin to sort of create value. And that was a, a full acquisition of, of health plan partners. Um, you know, it was a 25% um, part of that that came with one merger, 25% with a second, um, and then finally um, another section of that uh, uh, acquisition will come with an impending Einstein merger. The Einstein merger was reached some complications um, with the FTC, and 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 really, um, you, you know, the feeling that we might have been inhibiting competition. In Northern Philadelphia, I, I think in the end uh, the decision was rightfully made that Jefferson gave Einstein the best opportunity to continue to, um, service in North and Northeast uh, or Northeast and North Philly, um, where the most one of the most challenged populations for delivering health uh, occurred. And if you look at Jefferson's mission of improving lives, that's that's core to it. So the question is: So what was the pathway of going from sort of department level? Um, you know, real estate and, and facilities organization to a more corporate level. Uh, because at, uh, at, at the end of the day, each one of those systems essentially had a director level um, entity there in place. And so we've gone through a transformation, um, which is part of my charge coming in based on, on five pillars, governance, process standardization, workforce development, digital transformation, and uh, strategic sourcing, um, all sort of layered in with culture. We felt that culture would be needed to, to, to be changed in order to fuel um, really a lot of the, the tactical actions that were necessary for us to build a corporate capability. In the interest of time, I, I won't go uh, deeper than that, but um, over a beer, if, if, if you just desire, I could sort of walk folks through um, how we've been going through that transformation process, which I planned to be able to execute in three to five years and we were actually able to execute in, in two years, getting the, the leadership in place, uh, the processes in place, the vendor support in place um, to really sort of accelerate us through a, a, a very tactical, capital-centric um, delivery for our, our facility services to a more total life cycle-centric uh, focus with a heavy emphasis on business solutions and developing those business solutions to help fuel um, this continued
0: growth. Awesome. Thank you, Mitch. I'm gonna at this point, I'm gonna take the slideshow off and We'll have more of an open dialogue here. Um, Mitch just outlined several things. I'm going to ask a quick question. You went from how many hospitals in 2014 to how many hospitals today, and then correspondent to that, how many total sites of care in that time span?
2: Yeah. So you know, so roughly three hospitals, and I'd, I'd say 60 sites of care in 2014. To today, um, 14 hospitals, roughly 350 uh, sites of service, uh, representing about 14 million square feet. Um, and then, you know, with the, the, the addition of Einstein, another three hospitals, um, another 40 plus facilities to that, so close to 400 facilities, um, you know, probably taking us somewhere, you know, north of 16 uh, million square feet of uh, space to manage. Um, pretty you know it's a pretty significant uh, um, uh, growth um, but I but I think you, you know the, the, the beauty of being an industrial engineer is you know just understanding how complex systems uh, come together. And so when I talked about those five pillars they were just really meant to sort of address the complexity by by simplifying how we integrate and, and work together and that simplification has, has has enabled you know a lot of our leadership to buy into the core mission and vision of what we're trying to do, and, and really sort of acce- accelerate that transformation. So uh, a lot of moving parts uh, to that. Um, it's a pretty fun place to be, and it's you know no days uh, the same. But um, we we have some heavy lifting ahead of us as we as we get ready for this next merger.
0: That's awesome. We've got another question that came in, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put it on hold just for a minute, and. Uh, since Matt's also an engineer and I'm a sales guy, so I don't I, I don't see the processes the same way you guys do, and I don't know about Victor, but Matt, uh, Mitch said several things in this growth transformation period of of Jefferson that kind of hit upon a theme you outlined in our pre-call, which was you know health systems looking at financial, operational, and clinical optimization, mm-hmm. and then what's left over is real estate. It's an afterthought, and yet. Now Mitch has got, he's gone from like three hospitals and, you know, two dozen sites of care or 40 sites of care to almost 400 sites of care and 60 million square feet. Can you speak a little bit and and Victor, I'll have you add on to this a little bit. Can you speak a little bit to what that, what, what sort of value implication can be either unlocked there or, or, uh, Either it can be a detriment or a gain, depending on how it's used. When you think about that scale of real estate growth and the value of some of that underlying real estate, can you speak a little bit about how that might be viewed? And Victor, I'd love you to weigh in on uh, some of your professional experience in valuing that when you go into M&A discussions.
1: Yeah, I think there, I guess I'll address it kind of in two a quick answer and a longer answer, John. I think the, the quick answer is when these, especially mergers are coming together, they're non-cash. Uh, in the in the not for profit sector, I mean, you're you know, kind of bringing organizations in, and you're probably trading governance and management roles. If there's any trade, that's kind of the currency in a lot of these not for profit deals. If there's an asset sale or an asset purchase, then yes, there is a lot of money to change his hand. Like you know, Novant you know paid over a billion, I think a billion four for you know a new hospital in in uh, uh, Wilmington. I mean, that was a bunch of money went to someone else, uh, you know, to kind of the local government. Um, but most of these mergers we're looking at are, you know, bringing the two organizations together and creating a new organization. And so, value in the traditional sense doesn't really equate into that. It's around those broader goals that you mentioned around, you know, clinically, uh, you know, probably most or foremost clinically, and then kind of financially and from a platform. How do we bring this together and look at it? And so, I think it it comes downstream, which I think is where Mitch uh, can, can speak to it too around what they're, you know, scaling to unscale you you get this broader footprint, you get this kind of catchment area that, you know, feeds itself and also feeds like, you know, maybe a central core for some of these health systems where there's a, you know, a large health system at the, at, the, at the base of it, that you're trying to bring more and more patients into that platform. You get that, and then you've got to be more focused on, okay, we've got two outpatient clinics in the same zip code. They both have MRIs. We're doing the same service lines at both. This, this is really silly. Um, but you're kind of working, you know, top down on that, then, then bottom up around, let's get the footprint. And then we can go to work because there's earnings and, you know, kind of cash flow value. But then there's also, you know, trapped capital around, you know, sites of care that you just don't need, that are, you know, superfluous to what you're trying to do as an organization. Those could be monetized in a, in a, in a different way than places that are more strategic and more core to the, the clinical offering. And I don't know, Victor, if there's anything you'd, you'd pile onto that
3: no I mean I think I think you're you know spot on in terms of looking at an entire portfolio and determining you know which what assets may not be strategic that could be sold um, you know in the context of you know member substitution um, you know we do we do a lot of post transaction work where we're even though there's no cash consideration it still has to be booked so we value it uh, as if you know how would it be valued in a if there were another buyer and, you know, allocating between the, the tangible and intangible assets, typically real estate's the largest uh, item on a hospital balance sheet. So, um, you know, it may not be the driver of the transaction, but obviously it's a, if it's, it's a significant, uh, a significant asset from a valuation or analytics standpoint, and then a lot of hospitals are old and, and require a lot of, of capital. And so uh, when, whether it's a, a true acquisition by a for-profit entity, or, or a member sub scenario, you know, one of the things that has to be talked about and considered is what's the capital commitment going to look like, um, and a lot of that is going to be spent on the facilities. Um, I'm sure Mitch could could speak to that.
2: Yeah, actually, I wanted to to continue a point that Matt was making because it, it, it's it's a good line of sight. You know, when you when you when you talk about moving from a director centered um, operation to sort of a more executive level, centered operation, you know, there's this business co- uh, competency that you add to the equation because at the director level, it's all about execution and operation, right? Keep, you got to keep the lights on and you got to the water, water flowing. When you move to the executive business acumen, then you start to do things like, man, I got to dissect all of these leases uh, that I've got. Right. And, and then, and so you, you bring a, a, a certain, a higher level of professionalism in all your practices, that, that and, you know, for Jefferson, at least over the past two years has extracted some significant values, right? Driving down our opera expense for, for leases because we're looking at leases uh, from a more strategic uh, standpoint. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're more strategic in how we lay our requirements out and, and how we do our negotiations, um, bringing a lot more strategic competencies to things like sustainability and energy management. So driving down costs there. So, I think in, in our first year, you know, we, we installed our real estate department and, and put a lot of these processes in place. Um, you know, uh, Matt talked about trapped capital. We were prop, we were we were uh, able to unlock close to fourteen million dollars in trapped capital, right? Um, capital that was sitting in places people that people had just lost uh, line of sight on because we didn't have the processes in place to to understand you know how the money was flowing. Um, and the efficiencies that we got to, by bringing the scale together and entering you know, enterprise level contracts to drive down our, our utilities expenses and things of that sort. And so those, when you talk about scale, that's what scale allows you to do. The unscaling is, is you know, to both the points, both Victor and have made. Now I got a whole lot of redundant infrastructure, right? And oh, by the way, do I need to really sort of evaluate my operating model for how I'm delivering care right? And and revamp that so it's, it's better aligned to get the efficiencies from real estate. We talk about real estate efficiencies, but it's really operational efficiencies that we go through, more efficient use of our staff, equipment, assets, all of those things. And oh, by the way, when you bring all of those components together, you, they come with a, a huge deferred maintenance backlog. And so, you know, that unscaling is, is necessary to get rid of stuff that you don't need to be maintaining anymore. So you can you can bring your deferred maintenance backlog into a manageable state. And now you can start to become a little bit more creative in sort of the financial vehicles and mechanisms that you're using to actually capitalize your, your, your footprint.
0: Great commentary. Um, thank you for all of that. We'll address this question real quick. Uh, I'll paraphrase a little bit, Mitch, in some of your comments, you mentioned uh, conversations with the FTC. We, that was frankly, widely publicized with the Einstein Transaction. Um, so this is probably a question for the panel. Has the FTC during the first few months of the Biden administration taken a more involved role in big m and transactions, or do we expect them to do so? And the FTC, if the FTC does take an expanded role, do we expect that it will meaningfully slow down the rate of m and in healthcare? So kind of two parts. Anybody want to take that first? Matt, why don't you take it first? You're head at the MA group at Coffman Hall.
1: It's a, it's a really important question, and I, I think it is still kind of early days. Um, they FTCs have a lot on their plate, but I think there's a lot in the in the tech world that they're going to be very focused on. And I think there are hearings even this week on potentially new legislation in that arena, but I think they've been focused on healthcare for a while um, and have been targeted uh in kind of challenging mergers especially where there's overlapping geographies like um like the jefferson einstein one they've they've scrutinized those ones very hard uh we've some seen some organizations get kind of state you know copas and different types of things where they're allowed to you know maybe kind of circumvent some of that but those are very tricky to do and each state is different i think what gives us you know a little bit of you know just frankly concern because there's just a lot of you know unknowns here is you know the State of California has always taken a very active role in this. I think you know their attorney generals have always been very hands-on when it comes to not-for-profit uh, healthcare MA and specifically. And the you know the two most recent attorneys general of California, are now the vice president and the head of HHS. Um, so I think they 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 speak this language. They they're knowledgeable. What does that turn to in terms of actual you know policy and, and challenges? I don't know that we know yet because um, I think we're just only a couple months into it. And frankly, there haven't been enough big deals that have gone through the process and actually gotten the, you know, hart filings and those things processed to actually be challenged. But I think it's uh, something to be watching very closely.
2: Well, I, I think, you know, I don't want to jump into the FTC question directly, but if you look at what was happening in the Philadelphia market, you know, Hahnemann closed. Uh, and so there was a huge safety net hospital that that left the system. St. Christopher's closed. Um, and then there's a, a couple of other systems you know that uh, that are that are struggling and and so um, I, I think the government, whether it's federal government or state and local government, you know they have to they have to start to balance what is the best value, the best way to bring value in terms of care for this community for any particular community um, And yeah, there may be competition issues and things of that sort, but you know, when you're the only game in town, or potentially you're about to lose the only game in town as a safety net for you know for significant pieces of the, of the population, I gotta believe that that's got to sort of influence you know how those decisions are made uh, for because it, it's it's not like you're gonna make a mint off of that payer mix uh, that you're that you're bringing to the table. So this is this is really about an organization's commitment to really want and desire to bring health. And healthcare to, to underserved parts of the community.
3: Yeah, I think that's a good point, Mitch. That um, you know you have to look at what what are the realistic alternatives, and what are some of what are some of the outcomes? I mean, if if the government's looking at it, what are some of the outcomes when it's acquired by you know a for-profit entity or private equity entity versus a not-for-profit entity that there may be you know overlapping markets with. Um, and you know, some of the points that Matt raised earlier about some of the trends, you know, deals like uh, the North Carolina, Virginia, Cone, Centara deal, you know, adjacent markets, you know, Intermountain and Sanford, they got called off. But again, adjacent markets, I think that strategy in theory, you know, should have a, a cleaner path to regulatory approval. So um, but I think that the, my take is similar to Matt's that it's kind of too early to say anything other than, there's still a lot of M&A activity and so far, so far there doesn't appear to be a, a slowdown.
1: Yeah, I think the, um, the trend that is, was, was there during the Trump administration and that we'd expect would be there with the current administration is around, you know, price transparency. And that if you see some of the challenges, especially the recent one in California between Huntington and Cedars, a whole number of bullet points from the attorney general's office about that around man- maintaining prices, maintaining the current negotiating structures, not allowing a combined organization to really use its new scale to to drive prices. I think that, that's what it all kind of drives down to is um, there's not great transparency on this. I think there's articles all the time about, you know, getting an ultrasound in, you know, Reno versus an ultrasound in some other part of the state. And it's like five times more and nobody's really sure why. And that's something that you know it plays into the ftc question a little bit because i think they're, they're worried about competition and and pricing and, and that kind of leverage points and we, we don't expect that to dissipate uh, at all uh, even with the change in administration
2: yeah and, and, and you know when when you when you think about what happened with the exchanges and 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 you know the industry going happy you know people who had not been payers before and and, and feeling that there was business opportunities there and then entering that space and getting our clocks cleaned and it's the same with hospitals, you know, with 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 Hahnemann, you know, a for profit picked up that hospital thinking that they could they could figure out how to make that that work. And, you know, there's there's fundamental differences between a way a for profit organization runs and a, and a, and a not for profit. And so, you know, it's it's a much more complex, um, you know, business model than 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 a lot of people really give it credit for it. If, you, if you're not, you know, going in and if you're not sort of doing the assessments, like I can remember um, being at KP and, and looking at a couple of opportunities, it wasn't a slam dunk that we were going to actually go forth with the, with the. in those cases, they were mostly acquisitions. You know, the business model just didn't shake out. And so, you know, we just, we just didn't pull the trigger. And so I think you know the ability to do, to do due diligence and, and really understand the complexity of the deal is you know and you know you know this Matt because you, you, I mean this is part of y'all's business model that's going kind to of just become increasingly important to help people understand what are they really getting into um, when they pull these organizations together and then I think like the entry question that got asked, okay, you've done it so how do you you know basically how do you extract that value through your governance and and all of those business practices that you're bringing to extract the value out of this new asset that you just
0: uh, uh, merged with. And you know, the, it's, uh, I'm going to read a quick quote from the North Carolina Attorney General. So, this isn't necessarily specific to the FTC, but it's certainly very specific to government entities getting involved. Uh, and this was in an article I pulled just a couple of days ago. Uh, relative to a lot of activity in North Carolina, right? I mean, there's a, a Novant recent acquisition in the Concentera deal. Bigger doesn't always mean better. In fact, it often means worse and more expensive. So, so we know what the Attorney General of North Carolina is coming into this with, but that, we're getting down a government path and this is supposed to be somewhat real estate related. And I think maybe uh, that is where some expense can be saved, right? I mean, so all of a sudden you've got 350 sites of care. There there has to be gross redundancy in a third of those. That redundancy is a cost. That cost has to be captured somewhere. Uh, How how do your clients try to get over that before a closing or before they have pushback from a a municipality, for example, that says, hey, you're coming in here, you're buying all hospital, but uh, we kind of like this clinic over here. We don't want you to do anything different with it. I mean, it becomes very local and a lot of local ownership around these growing entities. So how do you advise your clients around that sort of diligence and making sure that it is addressed in a way that it's not adding to the cost structure?
2: That, that introduces complexity, John, because you know, you're, you're coming into these deals, and and there are these you know these shadow agreements that have that have already been made. So, you know, if you're coming in there, uh, you know, like, uh, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a slash and burn deal to to extract the efficiencies. It's not gonna be that easy, right? Um, you know, it's not it's not easy to to talk to people about shutting down an asset or or impacted in a significant way if it's the only you know the only safety net in, in a particular community. So I, I honestly think that's the challenge on the real estate side. And I think the, the other part of it is, you know, I look at uh, healthcare needing to go through some of the, the revolutions that we had in like, um, you know, service industries, retail and things of that sort. Uh, you know, I, I've used Starbucks as an example. Starbucks has a business model that they can easily replicate wherever they go. And so with, with healthcare, it, it's all right. What is the secret sauce for how I deliver my care to extract those efficiencies, make it hyper efficient, so I can I can make a margin and reinvest. Um, and I think I think most systems are still struggling with, you know, how to develop that model. And I think, for, from my standpoint, that will heavily influence the type of footprint that we need to to put out there and the network. You know, how that how that footprint is distributed. Across the market, and I mean, once once healthcare figures that out, I think that's a secret sauce uh, to this thing. And it it in my in my mind, real estate can do a a heck of a lot to influence that going forward. John, it looks like we got a couple of questions. Uh,
3: I don't know if you if you want to uh, dive into private equity is one
0: of them, and government obligation bonds is the other. Um, there you go. Sorry about that. Hey, you know, we're 12 months into Zoom. I can still forget to unmute myself sometimes. Um, two good questions that are part of our topic of discussion today. Uh, one is, can we speak to any trends in the real estate component with physicians and specialty private equity firms in the ambulatory area, especially? So I think that's is specific to the private equity roll-up of physician practices, and then maybe there's some real estate, underlying real estate implications in those roll-ups. So let's address that real quick, and then we'll get into um, government obligation bonds. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure we all have thoughts on that. I mean,
3: as you know, if you're a hospital, you're competing with private equity for, you know, physician practice acquisitions, and it's if you're a physician, you're evaluating employment model with a hospital versus uh, what is what's this private equity model look like, where you carve out some earnings, you put a multiple on it uh, and you roll it up into a platform. And for the, the, the acquiring entity, it's, you know, it's an essentially an arbitrage between the, the multiple that they buy, the practice at, and then the the multiple that the platform trades at. Um, We, we track the, I know 2020 was, I believe a record of like over 5,000 private equity deals across all industries and you know, healthcare is no exception. Um, uh, On my personal experience with it tends to be in more of a diligence capacity. So helping, helping answer real estate diligence questions around, you know, maybe there's a a platform company that has uh, a bunch of satellite clinics scattered around the state and those may or may not have well-documented agreements for, for what they are. Um, How do you, you know, put those in place during the life cycle of a, during an LOI to get, to get a deal done. Um, if the question asked about the ambulatory area, you know, a lot of ambulatory clinics, surgery centers, urgent care, what have you, are physician owned, so then you have compliance issues. Uh, is the private equity acquirer interested in owning the real estate? Generally not. Um, if it's a hospital, or, you know, is there an interest in JVing with physicians on any, any existing or new real estate? You know, what's the go-forward lease going to look like? Is the hospital going to guarantee it, so then the physician can sell it? Um, I think it's, yeah, you know, it's a really fragmented market with a lot of real estate implications. Um, Matt, you you have thoughts on
2: on this one?
1: This is a, you know, this is an enormous market, and then private equities after it. And you know, I think the, the numbers we've seen were like you know 60 billion of private equity deals just last year, even in the pandemic. And it's not just in the acute care space; when I mean, this is you know, there's hospital uh, operators, you know, that are they're backed by private equity. You know, Cerberus uh, turned a really good profit on what they did at Steward. That's been pretty well publicized. But they're also investing in all these other service lines, home health, virtual telehealth, et cetera, where, you know, there's it's easier to scale and not as regulated as the inpatient environment. And so you've seen an enormous amount of money. Um, and then subsequently, a lot of IPOs and other types of uh, monetization activities where, you know, private equities in here and they're competing on the business and they're also competing on the real estate a lot of the big um, you know you know developers and others who are actually the ones building these outpatient clinics uh, you know off-campus eds uh, ambulatory surgery centers what have you you know they're private equity backed as well um, and looking to get you know into the healthcare arena in that angle so it's, it's just very very widespread
3: and I, I think to your point Matt it's you know t- every vertical has different considerations you know the ophthalmology optometry dermatology they're all you know hot private equity targets uh, mm-hmm. from a, whether it's a real estate or operational perspective they have different different real estate needs uh different risk factors different sort of go dark risk if you're if you're acquiring the real estate um but uh, yeah i know we're we've got another question to answer more to cover so john yeah. Mitch, y'all have anything on any comments on the private equity world?
0: Well, I think just a big part of it is that if the PE firms are going after it intelligently, I shouldn't say it that strongly, but do your diligence up front. I mean, there's in a physician owned JV hospital or a physician owned JV ambulatory surgery center, that's real dollars in that real estate that these docs have locked up. They're going to want to value that in their acquisition price. If there's a hundred of those that's being rolled up into a PE firm, that is millions and millions and millions of dollars of value. Just do the diligence up front. I mean, it's, it's, that's the thing. Hire an advisor, go do the diligence, understand the sites, understand the investment, and they can probably put a number around it pretty quickly.
1: And John, back to the point earlier around um, kind of, you know, you come in and you change sites of care and kind of that, you know, that line of question. I think there's a lot more emotional and, kind of government energy around inpatient access points. You know, what are you going to do with the hospital? What are you going to do with the ED? Are you going to local, all those things? And those are really important. But from a business perspective, you know, 50% of the revenue is coming in outpatient. So when you're thinking about it as an operator and what you're trying to do clinically and financially with the space, yes, the inpatient chassis is important and that's the hub for a lot of these markets, but you know, the outpatient space where you know, there might be more sites of care that are underutilized or poorly located or, you know, really just old and tired. You know, that's a really important part. But as you're you're building that plan of how you actually bring this organization onto your platform, being realistic about the capital commitments you're going to have to make.
2: Yeah, Matt, I think that's, I think you just kind of hit the nail on the head on the risk in in healthcare, right? Because the business model was was predicated on driving, you know, uh, demand, if you will, to the acute inpatient. And now it's shifting, it's pivoting, um, and so the you know the profit driver, the revenue driver, is actually going to be sort of that middle ground, that ambulatory place um, where you go in and you get your procedure. It's something that can't be done at the home, but it ha- you know it has to be done in a in a clinical environment. Um, and so if you've if you've got a lot of hospital um, you know sort of a- a- assets, then you, you've got to sort of rejigger that business model so that you can sort of begin to hopefully optimize the value that you're gonna extract uh, out, of, out of those. At the same time, you're driving down volume. And I, I equate it to the same issue that we had with um, energy, you know, where you look at the grid and you look at, you know, we, 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 we built all these power plants in the grid to sell electrons. And then in the, in the 80s and 90s, all of a sudden we said, no, we got to start to conserve. But the business model, the business case for building all that infrastructure was on selling electrons. So in this particular case, our business model needs to be built upon, you know, wellness, keeping people out of the hospital. So, you know, it, there, there's a lot, I think, that has to be done in figuring out how that business model shifts with our current infrastructure in a productive way um, so health systems can make that orderly transition to the, the, you know, the new model. You know, Dr. Klasko talks about it, the new math. And in his mind the new math involves academics and it involves uh clinical innovation um and for us it's it's philanthropy so how does that new math come together to give you a different model for how you deal, deliver care and, and what he would describe as health assurance not health insurance
0: yeah yeah very good follow-on there so this this additional question have you dealt with government obligation bonds in any transactions where a nonprofit or for-profit has acquired the real estate such that the bonds need to be redeemed? And Matt, you and I kind of touched on this a little bit yesterday with the uh, HCA situation, but I'm interested in your comments on the redemption of government obligated bonds.
1: Yeah, I think I might draw the circle broader than just GOs, but kind of just you know, tax exempt debt more broadly where there's, yeah, yeah. there's real... Rules about what you can use that type of debt for, and it absolutely plays in where you know, if you're a not-for-profit health system that's being purchased by a for-profit acquirer, that asset is going to be for-profit from the moment it closes, and so that debt is not going to be um, allowed to be tax exempt. And so there've been a number of these, you know, mission in North Carolina, others where they've had to essentially prepay that that debt, and that ends up being kind of part of the the purchase price that comes in from HCA or whoever it might be. Um, the flip side is true too, where, you know, when organizations have bought assets from for-profits, they definitely have the option to finance those tax exempt. They might not be able to do that immediately because it takes time to get the right IRS, uh, you know, letters and other types of approvals to actually have those assets be tax exempt, but you're absolutely eligible to do so. Uh, Novant uh, who just purchased New Hanover, they had the ability to finance that tax exempt. It was too tax exempt organizations that were coming together, you know, they looked at, they looked at rates and thought about what, um, what made sense and they financed the entire thing taxably. And that's just kind of a function of the, you know, the, where the markets are. So, you know, the type of financing that supports a hospital is important, but, you know, that ends up being, you know, similar to the real estate of like, it becomes a diligence issue about, you know, okay, what's there, what can we do with it? What can we, you know, even when it's 2 not for profits, it's not a, it's not totally clean because it depends on the state you're in and sometimes the indenture and how things are written, that sometimes that debt has to stay with the selling organization, even though the assets are no longer there. And then you've got to kind of backfill with um, you know, with, with new capital. So it's a complexity, um, but it's a key issue because if you're 140 you know, $140 million of the purchase price is going to pay off debt, there's just less that's left over for everybody else.
0: Yeah, and think about in another context, uh, which is what you and I touched on on a separate conversation, a nonprofit entity that's used to having very favorable property tax exemption treatment, acquiring three for-profit hospitals, and then all of the correspondent real estate that goes with those for-profit hospitals. What happens to the property tax implications therein? I mean, and what sort of pushback might they get from the municipality or the state to still honor those exemptions, where it's you know arguably tens of millions of dollars that are coming in, through those for-profit entities, that a nonprofit's is going to have to figure out a way to reconcile.
1: I think I've got a follow-up question here um, on the redemptions are the cost high, and then on the government entity to nonprofit. Have you ever saw an IRS ruling where the geo bond is deemed to continue as a non-taxable bond, but obviously not as a geo bond? Um, the redemptions are high. Uh, I think that's the function of just interest rates being low your kind of, your cost to get out of those those debt obligations is pretty significant. Um, But in terms of the kind of the second part of that question around, you know, going through the IRS, I mean, personally, I've not. Uh, I think, you know, generally when the acquiring organization is bringing it in, unless the cost is significant, they're looking to just kind of pay off the old balance sheet and bring it out on kind of a new capital structure. Um, You know, so going to get you know, different approvals and things. It just just takes a long time and there's no guarantee of success. So often that's worth kind of just throwing money at that problem and then doing kind of a, you know, clean solution on the new chassis.
0: Got a couple of, uh, thank you, Matt, for addressing those. A couple of slightly in the weed comments here that I'm going to address for uh, Mitch and Victor. One is around community engagement as you are dealing with hospitals or outpatient sites being acquired and then the other is even more tic-tac-y than that like lots of outpatient facilities are on ground leases um hospital might own the ground but it's ground leased to a developer who owns the building Mitch and in your growth that you've seen at Jefferson over the years how how important was it or how important is it now that you're engaging in those conversations at local municipalities and or ground owners that have vested interest in what these hospital clinics are. And Victor, are you seeing that mess deals up when you're trying to put valuation on it? And, and that, that, that question for you, Victor, is you know community engagement messing things up and or the valuation of ground leases and such. So Mitch, I'll start with you real quick. And it's not intended to be totally weedy, but it is an implication when you're trying to figure out a way to deal with real estate in these deals.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I hate to be sort of wishy-washy, but it, it depends, you know, um, it just, it just depends on, you know, the circumstances that you have. I mean, we have, uh, you know, our, our specialty care pavilion is, is going, um, up in center city and it's, 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 it's on a site tied to the Gerard estates. It's a Essentially, a ground ground lease, right? If we want to be in that location, we, we have to cut the deal. There is it is it our preferred modus operandi? Probably not, but you, you have to do what you have to do. And and you know, I ran into that in Hawaii uh, with KP and, and other places where you 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 know you you have land that's encumbered for you know generations, um, and and you just have to. You have to do what you have to need to do to get your site at that at that location. Ultimately, you're looking to make sure that the business case works, right? Um, right. So, I get I, I hate to be wishy-washy, but you know, that's that would not necessarily ordinarily be my preferred tax. Right. Yeah. Well,
3: yeah, and I'll I'll steal Mitch's answer that it it depends as well. I mean, I think as far as community engagement goes, you know, a lot of hospitals and cities are in. Uh, In dense areas you know they were built you know 30 40 50 100 years ago um some some of those areas have complicated you know neighborhood advocacy groups zoning um, entitlements um those those make it a challenge to to pursue new construction um some some neighborhoods are are friendly and happy to have the hospitals there others are not you know, in more tertiary markets in the suburbs, they may be really happy for the hospital to build a new, you know, medical office and it may, you know, make the the process easy. So I'd, I'd say that um, navigating kind of community relationships really varies um, and can can be an obstacle or may not be. Um, as far as a ground leases issue, I think, I mean, ground leases are complicated. Sometimes they're they're prepaid, or there was some other consideration given, and the ground rents zero, so the lessee has a has a positive leasehold position. Uh, sometimes the ground lease captures other costs, other infrastructure on the campus. It may it may include the cost of a skybridge or a parking deck. So you have to understand what's in there. There's you know right of first option of offer, right of first refusals. There's put options, first options. There's use restrictions. Um, so I think that the, the ground leases are, you know, most hospital campuses in an urban setting have, have some level of ground lease if there's any other, uh, any other ownership. And it's just, it's just another thing to navigate, whether you're uh, acquiring the real estate, whether you're analyzing it. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a big topic. And It looks like we got one more question. Maybe we can crank out an answer before the end here.
0: Yeah, I think that the, uh, the whole discussion around community engagement and acquisitions of hospitals, there was a really thoughtful piece around uh, the whole history of Hahnemann uh, and, and then the closure of Hahnemann and the players involved and the discussions involved either behind closed doors or open doors. So for those that have an ongoing interest, I can't remember if that was in the New Yorker or the Atlantic. It was something recent, but uh, worth Googling and checking out. Final question for Mitch, and then we're probably gonna be wrapping up on time. Could Mitch speak to Jefferson's approach on leveraging real estate to enhance system and physician relationships? Slash, excuse me, system slash physician relationships.
2: Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, when we, when we think about uh, the rationalization and the realignment of, of the footprint, right? Um, because if you look at our current footprint, um, there's, there's, I mean, I, it's, it, it wouldn't be surprising to, to say anybody, there's no real rhyme or reason other than we got what we got, we inherited um, what we inherited. Um, and so now, you know, we're, we're going, okay, we got to go through the rationalization and realignment um, process. And then this is, this is kind of where the military aspect of me comes into in play because a lot of it's, to, it's, it's driven by the operating plan what is, what's going to be your new operating plan for how you're going to deliver. Right. And so you have this very distributed model with, you know, 350 sites all over the place. Um, And you want to get to this integrated model, but there's an interim step of just, you know, all right, I got, you know, five facilities or 15 facilities in the same zip code. I'm just going to put them in the same box. Does that represent the operating model that, that you really want? to to, to put in place? Are the adjacencies, um, you know, do they create efficiencies? And so one of the things that we're kind of testing with our specialty care pavilion is, you know, curating the relationships of all the service lines as they go into that building, as they relate to the ambulatory surgical center and the imaging and lab and all those things, um, you know, they're curated in a, in, a, in a way that the building operates as a system um, and it and allows people to go in and, and have a high degree of probability that you can get all of your services that you need done in that done in that single location. Um, and so I think we on the real estate side uh, can help the, the, the clinicians sort of understand how that happens, right? So you look at the 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 product lines that go into this, you know, business unit. So the building is a business unit made up of product lines, you know, clinicians would say service lines. How did? how does that curate it in a way that, you know, workflows and other efficiencies and adjacencies come to play? And that's the, that's the beauty of being an industrial engineer in this space because those are all industrial engineering uh, sort, sort of aspects because, you know, when your margin is 2%, right? Every little bit that you can shave off the cost structure counts. Every efficiency that you can get out of your staff counts, right? When, a, when the lights are off in an exam room or a procedure room during work hours, you're losing revenue. And, and that, you know, we're about care and it's about delivering the care, but delivering the care is about also being affordable so people can have access to it. So we, those two have to be blended together. And I think you know the real estate aspect of this is, is 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 the perfect place to to help all the different stakeholders understand how does that blend together to to really deliver our carrot. I think that's a that's an incredible um, aspect of this that we can deliver from the real estate. Um, and, uh, and John, I know we didn't have
3: time to go into it, but uh, just you know twenty seconds on on that question. You know, the build to suit markets is an avenue that we see a lot of. Uh, hospitals pursuing leveraging real estate to align physician system re- relationships new surgery center new ortho hospital some other type of specialty hospital you know joint venture develops it or leases it from another joint venture it's usually a mix of physicians and hospitals and either less or lessee physician maybe a third-party developer a lot of uh, structuring considerations from a uh, you know fairness commercial reasonableness and uh, you know you uh, kind of profits distribution between the
0: parties to work through but now, a joint venture ownership position can be a very a joint venture ownership in the real estate can be a very powerful tool in managing the hospital physician relationship dynamic so it's, it's a real thing and should always be explored if it's the right fact set and we are at 159 so uh, i think it's probably time for us to officially sign off matt victor mitch you know you see clayton mitchell in front of your name but I, i don't know anybody that's ever called you clayton but uh thanks for your time great discussion gentlemen um